Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 11. This morning, John chapter 11. We'll read first 46 verses. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that it was that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to her, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. 
for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that, you may be- so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that we would believe that it is your word that it is inspired, inerrant, it is authoritative, and that it is our work and the work of the Spirit to move us to bow to it, to believe every word of it, Father, to obey what it commands. Lord, so help us. We are stubborn sheep. We do not like to hear that we are wrong. We do not like to be corrected. We do not like to be redirected. We just like to be left alone. And yet we know, Father, that any sheep that is left alone will die. And so, Father, give us humility of spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So where are we in the three-year ministry of Jesus? Do you know where we're at? In chapter 10, at the very end of chapter 10, verse 22, you remember that it said that it was the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is mentioned there. That was the month of December uh, in the year 29 AD. It's likely that the raising of Lazarus took place the following month, January or February of 30 A.D. That would put this about two months before the last week of his earthly ministry. It's just a couple months before he enters Jerusalem and is tried and is crucified. Once we hit chapter 12 in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, almost the rest of the book of John, except for the very end, 20, the last half of 20 and 21, all of it, nearly nine chapters, is a chronicle of the Christ's Passion Week. It's the last week of his life. So very shortly we'll get to that and it will be the final week. It's the triumphal entry to... Um, and. Uh, And Jesus would enter Jerusalem and he would be crucified. That would be his last great work, right? And um, the Apostle John, strangely enough, but not strangely enough, when you think about the extraordinariness of this this passage, spends a lot of time, a lot of verses on this single event. Right, Lazarus getting sick, dying, being laid in the tomb, and then being raised from the dead by Jesus. It's an extraordinary story, and so you would expect a, a detailed account. But what is strange is that this event does not occur in any of the other Gospels. I mean, how can that be? I mean, how could it be that this... the maybe the most extraordinary, I would say it is the most extraordinary miracle that Jesus performed. It's not in any of the other Gospels. Um, How can a death and resurrection not be mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I don't know, but, but it is in one Gospel, and that's enough, right? 
It's in one gospel, and that's enough. The scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this important account fits right here in John's gospel. And and praise God that John was around and witnessed these things and, and left us with this. It is no less important or somehow less to be emphasized because it only appears in one of the gospels. It only appears in John's gospel. There are many things in John's work that don't appear in the other Gospels. And so, um, it doesn't mean it's any less important. What we see in this chapter of John's Gospel clearly laid out for us is the two natures of, of Christ. We see very clearly His humanity and very clearly His divinity. He is the God-man. He is God fully, and He is man fully. We see that here. Um, He will weep. He will weep when He sees the, the death of His friend, when He contemplates His friend's death. That's a sympathy that we share with Jesus, right? And He will raise a man from the dead, a power that none of you has. He had. Ryle remarks, as God, he makes the grave itself yield up its tenants. Nowhere shall we find such striking illustrations of our Lord's ability to sympathize with his people also. As man, he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So right here in this chapter, I mean, almost, uh, almost more intensely than anywhere else in all of the Scripture, we see his humanity in, in weeping. There's no verse that, that's an extraordinary verse. Jesus wept. You know, why was he weeping? Why was he crying? Well, he was a man. And then, on the other hand, um, he, he says a word and a, a rotting body is reanimated in this life. So verse 1, we're going to get through about six verses today, okay? There's a lot. It's dense, right? We'll, we'll, be, we'll be in John 11 till, till Christmas. No, not that long. Verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the setting is described here. We're in the city of Bethany. Verse 18 of this chapter tells us the specific location. Like, if you look forward, Bethany was near Jerusalem. It was about two miles off. So he's a couple miles from Jerusalem, getting close to his entry into that city. There are two different Lazaruses mentioned in Scripture. Uh, the, The poor man, you remember, covered in sores, who's laid at the gate of the the rich man, that would be found in Luke 16. That's a different Lazarus. Uh, And then there's this Lazarus that we've just read about, who's not mentioned in the other Gospels. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now we learn something specific in our passage about Mary and her relationship to Jesus. She, verse 2 says, was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, there are certain, some questions about this statement, right? Who, uh, that we have to sort of clarify. Um, is this, and the first one is, is this a reference to Luke 7, 36 to 39, where we see a woman who anoints Jesus and wipes Um, wipes her hair upon him. Luke 7 says this, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with, her, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. 
Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. Perfectly Pharisaical thing to say, right? Now I think that was a different anointing because it speaks of the notorious character of that woman as a sinner, which, which most interpret to mean that she was a prostitute. Right? She was one who worked with her body, and so that's why the Pharisee was scandalized, because here she's doing these intimate actions, and that's been her business to Jesus. Right? And so I think that was a different anointing, because it, the, um, we don't learn anything like that about Mary, sister of Martha. We just don't. Um, What is likely is that Jesus was anointed more than once. He was anointed at the house of Simon the Pharisee, which we just read about. Then in Bethany by this Mary that we're considering, he was anointed. And he wasn't just anointed by Mary once, he was actually anointed by Mary twice. Um, Perhaps, again, there's there's another anointing. Perhaps it was the anointing of Mary... um, is the one that's described in Mark 14. There we read of an anointing of Jesus with perfume of pure nard. It was said to have taken place by Mark two days before the Passover. Two days before the Passover. Yet, our passage, if you look at the, verse, the first verses of chapter 12, say that Mary anointed Jesus, yes, with perfume of pure nard, when? Six days before the Passover. So the woman of Mark 14 came to the same place, Bethany, in the same house that Mary and Martha lived in, Simon the leper's house, but it says she poured the oil over his head. Mary, though, poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So so clearly the scriptures, you know, this is one of those places where fools would say, well, the scriptures are contradictory, aren't they, right? They're contradictory. They got the days off and they got where the, the... Perfume of pure nard was poured off, one on the head, one on the feet, right? So let's abandon the inerrancy of Scripture, you know? No, why, why can't we simply explain it this way? Jesus was anointed more than once, it appears, you know, the notoriously sinful woman of Luke 7 early in his ministry, then twice during the time leading up to his crucifixion, once by the woman of Mark 14, which could also be Mary, and then six days before the Passover, six days before the Passover, then two days before the Passover, anointed again. That would show the the intimacy, the the love, the kindness that this Mary had for Jesus, anointed with costly perfume twice in that week. And note this, Mary did this anointing after the events described in John 11, right? It comes in the next chapter, but it's mentioned here by the apostle in chapter 11. It really helps, guys, if you have a Bible open and you're looking at Scripture because I'm walking through the passages and there are pew Bibles before you that you can take and you can look at. It's just, it's encouraging to me as I preach to see engagement in a Bible. Is it too much to ask? And I get confused if I see you on your phones. You know, that could go either way. <laughs> Especially when, I, when I'm just trying to get us into this and we're, we're bouncing around. And so if you, if you look, John 11, 2 mentions the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. And then if you skip to 12, 12 is where it happens. But John, of course, knew that. And so he's he's writing 11 and mentions what's coming. And and we also have to, you know, and the reason I think he clarifies in chapter 11 that this is the Mary that anointed Jesus with that perfume of pure nard is because there are a whole ton of Marys. Right? And he knows that. He doesn't want people to get confused about these Marys. Right? There's, there's you know, Jesus' mother. There's Mary, the wife of Cleophas. Uh, there's Mary Magdalene. And then there's Mary, the sister of Martha. And we can get all 
tied up with these Marys, you know? And so she, he's, the apostle is describing her by the memorable action she took in anointing Jesus. Okay, so much for the details and chronology. I think the purpose of putting this description of Mary is not merely for identification then, but it points to the sweetness of the relationship that she had with Jesus and that Jesus had with her. Right? And, and that Jesus had with her siblings and the siblings had with one another. Martha and Lazarus. And this becomes very clear in the next verse, doesn't it? Lazarus is very sick. I mean, sick to the point where they are, they are springing into action and something has to, they need some help somehow. He's very sick and so Mary and Martha send word to the one they know can help him. They go to the one they know has power. And look at the words they use. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They go to Jesus and say, he whom you love is sick. What sweetness there, right? Right? Well, maybe they're trying to manipulate him. You know, he whom you love. Oh, yeah, I do love him, don't I? Right? That's sort of a way we can work people. But I, I don't think so, because there's so much in this passage that speaks of the love that, that was between Jesus and these three. And so they go to him, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. The one whom you love is sick. It is true that Jesus was one who was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He was someone who had no place to lay his head. He was maligned. He was rejected by his people. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. That's, that's the life Jesus got to lead. Yet still, one of the mercies given to Jesus during his earthly ministry was friendship. One of the mercies that Jesus had during his misery and humiliation was friendship with a few people. Now think about that, friendship. Friendship, it seems, was something that he enjoyed with Lazarus. He enjoyed friendship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha as he fulfilled this grueling work that was given to him by his father to live and die for sinners, he did have a few friends. Just a few. Nowhere is this more clear than when Jesus, right, wept at Lazarus' tomb. I mean, we could get all theological in explaining that, that at, at the tomb of Lazarus, he's, he's grieving over the sins of the world. And that's probably true. But he's sad that it's Lazarus. He's sad that he's lost a friend. I think he's touched by the sorrow of losing a friend in the midst of unmitigating unkindness. Right? The world may be cold and cruel, but there are consolations that God gives to us, right? And one of those consolations that he gives to us is friends, friendship. And most particularly, you know, to, to uh, get a little mistaken about friendship, I, I think of the love of a, of a wife and a husband. How many times have I been fighting spiritual battles and discouraged by this or that, or, or that anonymous letter spit upon by cruel sheep. And I go home and find rest in the love of my wife and the love of my children. That's when I say, you can have all the world, you know. Just give me a little peace at home and give me Jesus. 
Right? The love and, yes, friendship of a wife is a solace in the midst of a wicked world. And that explains why bitterness between husband and wife is such a terrible thing. And why divorce leads to depression. The person who was once your solace in this world becomes your enemy. The very source of your affliction. It's just, it's, it, it's, a, it's gruesome. But Jesus had work to do, and that work would cause him to sweat blood as he contemplated it. Jesus had work to do, and that work caused the entire world to cry out against him, crucify that one. Right? Jesus was acquainted with sorrow, and he knew the incredible sweetness in the midst of sorrow of friendship. Friendship with Lazarus. And perhaps that explains why he would encourage us with these words, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Look down at verse 11 in Jesus' description of Lazarus. Our friend, Lazarus. And look at verse 5, which is extraordinary. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, we could say that that's like cosmic and like, you know, God is a God of love and before the foundation of the world, He, he loved them and He knew them and, and that is all very true. But, but I think here it means that He genuinely had solace in a friendship with them. He loved them. Right In the midst of a whole world seeking to kill him, there were some, no, that, that he just, he could rest around. Jesus had friends. Friends are a mercy of God toward us in a cruel and godless world. Right? If you don't have friends, if you don't have friends, you will likely find that you are fearful because you have only your own thoughts to make sense of this world. You have only yourself to consult with. If you don't have friends, you will likely find yourself descending into deeper and deeper self-centeredness. You will also find yourself, I think, stagnant in the faith if you don't have friends. We need friends, friends like the friends that are described in Proverbs, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, right? In this sort of friendship, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friends, right? Do you have that friend that can wound you and counsel you, can, can wound you and heal you? Right, can say the most outlandish sort of things that make your pride flare up and then you, you stop and contemplate it and you're like, you know, he's a numbskull, but he's right. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess he loves me. On the other hand, friends can be difficult, right? He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. ha <laughs> ha. Uh, I just think that's funny. We all know that. We all know that friend too. Cursing you in the morning by raising his voice. But let me say this. Pray that God will give you friends. Pray that God will give you friends. If Jesus, who knew perfect fellowship with God, think of that. He would go by himself to pray and he knew perfect fellowship with God. Perfectly satisfied, right? Perfect fellow. If, if even he, as I believe this passage points out, found solace in a few friends, how much more do you need that kind of fellowship? Like a million, a quadzillion times more. And, of course, the best way to have friends is to be a good friend. That's the best way to be, to have friends, is to be a good friend. Love others. 
Now, I want to pause here for a little bit. We'll come back to the passage, and, and this relates to this, this idea of friendship, but um, this is really important, this idea of friendship. There are two things. Whenever I think of friendship, I think of a couple of quotes. There, and both of these I've probably shared before, but there's one by Richard Baxter who, who says that friendship must be cemented by piety. In other words, friendship can only be cemented by a pursuit of good things. Certainly for Christians, that's true. Um, but, but you, you know, there are a lot of friendships in the world where it's cemented not by the pursuit of good things, but by the pursuit of bad things, right? You're drinking buddies, right? And so, listen, so as a Christian who, who wants to pursue holiness... Um, he, he goes on, he says, a wicked man cannot be a true friend. And if you befriend their wickedness, you show that you are wicked yourself. Okay, so that teaches us a little bit about what Christian friendship should be. Right? And so, generally speaking, your friends should, should be the, the men or women of this church. Right? Because we are in this pursuit of God together. We worship together. We're in this pursuit of God uh, to become holy. Right? And these, these are the people who you would hope would open up to you. And you would open yourself up to those in your church. I mean, you, someone who doesn't have a church, someone who doesn't see the importance of a church or who hops from church to church, you can almost guarantee that that is going to be a man who is friendless. And then, and then there's, um, there's this that I want to say. And this, this I'm vamping off of an article by Anthony Esselin called A Requiem for Friendship, Why Boys Will Not Be Boys and Other Consequences of the Sexual Revolution. Okay, and this specifically speaks to friendships between men, right? And men, men have, I mean, his essential point in the article is because of homosexuality, men are now afraid of being friends with one another, okay? Uh, because, it, because it looks like a relationship, right? It looks like it's, it's gay. And men who are men don't really want to give off that appearance with their friendships. And, um, and, th and then beyond that, there are a lot of pressures on men, specifically, um, to live for things other than friendship, right? You live for your work. You live for your work, and that's good to a certain extent, right? If you live for your work and your number one priority is your work, you will, you will go off the rails at some point because you will lack friends, right? And you will lack a church, right? If, if, if your work is always interrupting your service of God and your service of worship and your work in the church, you have got your priorities messed up. Okay. If you find that you can be late to church and never late to work, that might be a diagnostic of what you put first. Okay? Now my hackles are getting raised. Can you sense it? Can you sense it? I'm, the hair on the back of my head is kind of... This is an exhortation to you. Okay? This is me trying to be a good dad to this congregation. Um, you may be living for your work. You're, you're slaving away from them. Um, you may be living for your family. And so you're like, well, how pastor is that bad? <laughs> Lay that one on us. Well, some of you will, will serve your family to such an extent that it forces out service to anybody else especially the church, right? That's the southern gospel, family 
blood above baptism. Okay, that happens all the time. There's a competition, and many men will simply choose their mother or mother-in-law before they would choose their church. Okay? Um, and all throughout that, when, you're, when you put your time into work, when you put your time into family, you know what you're doing. One of the consequences of that is you're shunning friendship, the godly sort of friendship that I'm talking about that Baxter brings up, that pursuit of piety together. You're abandoning those sorts of things, right? Well, let me read some of this Anthony Esselin thing. And remember, that the context of this is Jesus having a friendship. Jesus having a friendship with Lazarus. That might, might that be a pattern for us, for us men? And women, you take the applications you want from this, but I'm talking to the men, okay? Here's what, here's what Anthony Esselin writes. Sam Gamgee, is that how we say it now? Or is it Gamgee? No, it's Gamgee. Has been fool enough to follow his beloved master Frodo into Mordor, the realm of death, to rescue Frodo from the orcs who have taken him captive and who will slay him as soon as he ceases to be of use in finding the ring. Sam has fought the monstrous, monst monstrous spider Shelob, has eluded the pursuit of the orcs and has dispatched a few of them into their merited deaths. Finally, he finds Frodo in the upper room of a small, filthy cell, naked, half-conscious, lying in a heap in the corner. And Frodo, he says, Frodo, my dear, he cries, it's Sam, I've come. With a bluff tenderness, he clasps him to his breast, assuring him that it is really he, Sam, in the flesh. Still groggy, Frodo can't believe it, and he clutches at his friend. It seems to him all the tissue of a dream that an orc with a whip has turned into Sam. And it is all mixed up with the sound of singing that he thought he heard and tried to answer. That was me singing, says Sam, shaking his head and saying that he had all but given up hope of ever finding his friend again. He cradles Frodo's head as one would comfort a troubled child. At that, a snigger rises from the audience in the theater. What? Are they gay? It's an ignorant but inevitable response, he writes. Shakespeare, or his narrative persona, <laughs> gives his opinion there, expressed in his sonnets a passionate love for an unnamed and not too loyal young man. So Shakespeare must have been homosexual. Despite the absence of evidence and despite his persona's explicit statement in Sonnet 20 that the young man's sexual accoutrements are of no use and interest to him whatever. The bachelor Abe Lincoln long shared a bed with his closest friend Joshua Speed and later wrote letters expressing with what seems a touch of self-deprecating irony his fear that he would be lonely once Speed had taken a wife. Lincoln, therefore, must be homosexual. No matter that men and women, too, commonly shared beds and also spoke of their friendship in strong, earthly language that now embarrasses, the poet Edmund Spencer celebrated, celebrator of his own wedding in one of the most brilliant poems in English, used to share a bed with his friend and fellow scholar at Cambridge, Gabriel Harvey. There you go. Your love to me was finer than the love of women, laments David in a public song when he learns of the death of his friend Jonathan. We know why. The godlike hero Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu walk hand in hand into the darkest forest of Humbaba. No wonder then that at Enkidu's death, Gilgamesh will weep inconsolably, letting his hair grow long, flinging away his robes and leaving the city to wander in the wilderness. He goes on. Let me stick with me here, guys. Skipping a whole bunch of arguments. It's an article you really should read. He says this about friendship. 
Friendship and the signs upon which it must subsist are in a bad way. I focus on the friendship of men since that is what I know about. Many comparable things might be said about the friendships of women. We still have the word friendship and we still have something of its reality, but it is distant, dilute, and bloodless. For modern American men, friendship friendship is no longer forged in the heat of battle or in the dust of the plains as they drive their herds across half a continent or in the choking air of a coal mine or even in the cigar smoke of a debating club. That is partly because our lives, for better and for worse, no longer involve the risk and the sweat that was the cement of deep friendship. No man will help hew the oaks for our cabin because we no longer live in the cabin. No man will stand by us as we jump overboard to set the trawling net because we have no boat and set no net. We live too comfortably for that. Under such fortunate circumstances, we need all the more the camaraderie and intellectual risk of the club. But gentlemen's clubs have vanished and have been sued out of existence. More than ever do men need to come together to eat and drink and argue and think because more than ever their work separates them from each other. But now they are virtually forbidden to do so. It is but more of the devastation wrought by the sexual revolution that we fail to see it as such is no surprise. Naturally, when we think of that recrudescence of paganism, we think first of its damage to the family, then to the relations between men and women. We think of divorce, pornography, unwed motherhood, abortion, suicidally falling birth rates, But the sexual revolution has also nearly killed male friendship as devoted to anything beyond drinking and watching sports. And the homosexual movement, a logically inevitable result of 40 years of heterosexual promiscuity and feminist folly, bids fair to finish it off and nail the coffin shut. What is more, those who will suffer most for this movement are precisely those whom our society Society, stupidly considering them little more than pests or dolts, has ignored. And by that I mean boys. And then he, he summarizes, he concludes this way, On three great bonds of love do all cultures depend. The love between man and woman in marriage. Amen. The love between a mother and her child. Amen and the camaraderie among men, a bond that used to be strong enough to move mountains. The first two have suffered greatly, and the third has almost ceased to exist. Friendship between men. Friendship between men. Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus showing us this intensity of friendship that he had with Lazarus should teach us. It should teach us that we've, we've got to, and, and here's, here's what I'll say about it last, right? It should teach us that we need to pursue the church where there are men who are, whose goal is to glorify God and pursue holiness, right? Because friendship's cemented on piety. That's the place where we'll find it. And so men... Men, stop being lazy. It is so wicked. I am tired of the the men of this church being lazy in the pursuit of my friendship. I want an opportunity to be your friend. And you're not at anything where where men get together. I mean, I'm stung by the the men and family thing where no one came for this camping trip. Not even during the day and not staying overnight. Just so little effort to be there. So many things, so many important things that interrupted your opportunity to be blessed by Caleb's generosity and friendship. Do you know how much work he put in for you because he wanted to love you? Because he wanted to be your friend? Do you know how much money he spent? 
to make this possible? Things come up. Can't do it, right? Take a day off of work. Tell your workplace no. Because you've been telling the church no a lot, right? I want a yes from you one out of ten times, okay? One out of ten times. Give the church a yes because I need your friendship. My sons need your friendship. Men, they need it. We're all dying on the vine, unconnected to the source of water, which would be fellowship with one another. Do you feel this, men? Do you know your guilt in it and your complicity in it? We need one another. Don't listen to your wife when she tells you not to go. Say, no, woman. I will be among my band of brothers. That's where I will be. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to make me come back and love you so much better. Because they're going to challenge me. They're going to work off my stupidities. They're going to mock me in all the right ways. You know, they're not going to take my crap. And men, your boys will be out of your home before you know it. And you want them to have seen the friendships that you have and go after those kinds of friendships. Because as soon as you boot them out the front door at a certain point, which you should do, um, Boys I'm talking about, okay? There's probably a time where the girls need to be booted out too. But boys certainly need to be pushed out to take on responsibility. And they will find that there's a competition for their soul. They will find that the world will supply them with a million friends. And it won't be cemented by piety, it will be cemented by dope. And cars. And sports. You know, it will be a disaster for them, okay? And so, you know, what grieves me about, and, and this has just long been simmering, right? I mean, p- part of the reason we're canceling a whole bunch of things is because you men just didn't step up to the plate and be involved. Part of it is we want, to, we want then to relieve your pain and just give you one thing to focus on. Sort of make it simple. Just go back to basics. Some spiritual milk. Instead of meat. For a time. Right? Maybe we'll get to meat. That's the hope. But brothers, we need one another. We need it because our sons are in a culture that is killing masculinity. Okay? We need to be a band of brothers. We need to be a band of brothers. And that means doing crazy things like getting our guns out and shooting together and making sure we don't shoot ourselves in the foot and injure one another or kill one another. It means sitting around a fire, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's doing for you. It means getting up early and, and cooking together or allowing Nathan to do all the cooking while we watch him do it and then just feasting afterwards. It, that's this, that, that, that is crucial. Jesus found solace in Lazarus just months before he would bear the sins of the world. And, G, and Lazarus dies and he's undone by it. He weeps at his tomb even knowing he's going to raise him from the dead. Even knowing that he's... He, but, but, but Jesus is contemplating the rotting corpse of his man. Even knowing that, he weeps there from that loss. He weeps from the loss that Mary and Martha had suffered. And so I want to just back to one thing that he said. Our three great bonds of love do, um, on three great bonds of love do all cultures depend. The love between man and woman in marriage. 
There's an intensity to that that's glorious. The love between a mother and her child, there is an absolute glorious intensity about that kind of love. Right? The mother bear. Intense. And then the last, he says, in the camaraderie among men. A bond that used to be strong enough to move mountains. And so I would even exhort those of you who are getting married or are newly married or have been married for 35 years or have been married for 50 years, you better not have only one friend in your spouse. That's terrible. That's terrible. You'll eat one another up, right? Because it's because there really is no friendship between a man and a woman. It's sexual. There's sexual tension in that friendship. And if you're married, wonderful. You have an outlet for that. But friendship is between the same sex. Women can still be friends today. Men can't be friends anymore because of all the influences. I think this is why men like Pete, uh, Jordan Peterson. I think this is why men are attracted to the manosphere because th- finally it's men saying, you know, forget you feminists. You're destroying things. We're going we're gonna to destroy our own things. <laughs> and they do it all wrong because their pattern for ma- masculinity is not based upon the God-man Jesus Christ. It's based upon movie characters and superheroes and uh, pickup artists and, and profligates. Is that enough to know how I, intense I am about this? Brothers, how disappointed I am as your father I am. How how there, I've had very few intense relationships in my life, friends, between uh, me and friends. I could probably name two or three that I would put in the highest category. Um, and often those came to a head when, when we wounded one another and those friendships were lost. But the glory of friendships within the church is you can wound each other and you know it's for one another's good. There's a context for the friendship, okay? And so that's what we need to be to one another. And you shouldn't let your wife get in the way of that. You should not let your family get in the way of that. You should not let your work get in the way of that. I want you to open your hearts to me. That's what I want. And I want you to open your hearts to one another or we're all going to die on the vine. That was the sermon within the sermon. Now, there's more in that little third verse. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Right? The friend of Jesus got sick. The friend of the one who, who could eradicate illnesses got sick. Right? The, the friends of Jesus get dementia. The friends of Jesus get MS. The friends of Jesus get rheumatoid arthritis. The friends of Jesus get cancer. They get COPD. The friends of Jesus get heart attacks and painful joints. Right? Ryle says this sickness in the very nature of things can never be anything but trying to flesh and blood. Our bodies and souls are strangely linked together and that which vexes and weakens the body can hardly fail to vex the mind and soul. But sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. Nay, more, it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to things above. Can anybody testify to that? I can. I mean, if you've had a cold, you can testify to that. <laughs> All right. If you've had a sinus infection and the misery of your teeth hurting, 
you can testify to that. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. It reminds us betimes that we are not to live always and tunes and trains our hearts for our great change. Then let us be patient and cheerful when we are laid aside by illness. Right? Let us believe that the Lord Jesus loves us when we are sick no less than when we are healthy. Spurgeon says the covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. (laughs) Oh, man. That's a hard lesson to learn. You who are afflicted. You who have children who are sick, who have chronic illness or deformities, But I think each of you would testify that it has forced you to depend upon God. It's forced you to depend upon God. It's made you think of eternal things. Is there anything bad in that? No, of course not. It's wonderful when your mind gets off this world and is forced on things eternal. Those wounds of God, just like the wounds of a friend, are faithful. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. For some of us, it may take a death sentence. You have two weeks to live in order to force our thoughts upon God. Next, notice what Mary and Martha were distressed, that that they were distressed about their their brother's illness. When they they are distressed, they, they go to whom? They take it to Jesus, okay? Very simple lesson here, right? They take it to Jesus. Um, Are you in the habit of this? Are you in the habit of when you're distressed, taking that distress to Jesus, right? Or when distress comes along, do you go into your own brain, right? And this, this just starts turning and turning and turning and turning and, and you plop that distress right down in your brain, which is just a pool of anxiety. And there it churns and churns. You know, I'm quite good at that. I'll cop to that one. I'm very good at that. Some difficulty comes along and the, the mind starts spinning out all the possible outcomes and you don't seem to have any solutions to any of them. There's a lump. It's cancer, right? It's your conclusion. There's a lump. It's cancer. There's a supply chain problem. Well, we're going to starve. We're going to die. Right? There's a solar flare coming. Right? The electrical grid is going to fail and everybody in hospitals is going to die because they need electricity to keep their ventilators running. You know, There's an asteroid approaching the earth. Right? We're all going to die. My wife's crying. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Our distress comes along Trials, we should perhaps call them, and instead of taking them to Jesus as Martha and Mary did, we take them nowhere. We take them within we, and just let them eat us up. Take your distress to God in prayer. Take it to God in prayer. Don't, don't keep your distress to yourself. Right? Take it to your pastor, too. Take your distress to your friends. It's another reason to have friends. Take your distress to them. Take it to your spouse, but most of all, don't ever take it to other people without taking it to your God. Stop thinking that prayer doesn't do anything. Just stop that. Stop it. Why did they take this distress to Jesus? It's certainly because they had seen his power and knew that he could do something about it, but it was also because they had simply a love for him. Right? Can you imagine hiding your distress from someone who loves you? If you do that, you are twisted. You are really in danger. If you hide your distress even from those who love you, right? Think of God. Think of God's love for you. Are you hiding your distress from the one who loves you the best? Right? He has adopted you into his household. He's redeemed you from the pit. He, he has taken you 
out of the filth and he's cleaned you up, right? And, and then he, he's died for you. And you will not take to him the things that are weighing you down. That's terrible. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. And why would you not take your concerns to one who is omnipotent and whose omnipotence is directed by his love for his children? Not only is he omnipotent, but his omnipotent works for your good. Ah, maybe I won't take this to him in prayer. God causes all things to work together for, for good to those who love God. Calvin writes, Where the love of God is, there deliverance is certain and at hand because God cannot forsake him whom he loves. God can't forsake the ones he loves. <laughs> and you don't take your distresses to him in prayer. Take your pains, take your worries, take your distresses. Take those things that right now are terrifying you. To God. Because he's your friend. He loves you. Um, it makes me think of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. The soul that, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So get yourself into your prayer closet. Do as the, the women did when their brother was sick. Now, another thing in this verse. I love Mary and Martha's confidence. He whom you love is sick. They're not afraid to talk of the affection that Jesus had demonstrated toward their brother. They knew of their love for one another. They knew of Jesus' love for him. They don't just go and give Jesus facts. Lazarus is sick. You know, and expect Jesus to then be like, okay. Um, they appeal to his love. They lean on it as they desire to get aid for their dying brother. It's confident, right? It's confident. He whom you love is sick. They understand the character of God. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without finding fault. Without finding fault, without reproach. That's who God is. You can go to him and ask for things and he's not going to be like, that's a stupid thing to ask for, you idiot. Because he loves you. He's adopted you. The word of the sisters makes it to Jesus and here is Jesus' response. The sickness is not to, to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now the sisters will hear this in this way. Lazarus' illness is not terminal. That's how they're going to hear what Jesus said. But that is not the only conclusion one could make. And knowing the end of the story, we know what Jesus meant, right? Because this sickness does not lead to Lazarus' death. Well, it does. <laughs> but not ultimately. It doesn't ultimately lead there. There's some lack of clarity in what he says. The lack of clarity is intentional so that when he performed his miracle, it would be unanticipated. Right? He could have said that Lazarus was going to die and then he's going to be raised from the dead after he gets stinky. He could have told him that. But that would not have been the test, the, the test that the circumstances Mary and Martha were, were about to go through. It would not have been the test that we see them go through. They had to see their dead brother and, in a sense, lose hope. Their faith was tested that way. And what does Jesus say this is all about? It's not about Lazarus dying. It's about, the, it's about God's glory and specific, specifically that he, the Son of God, may be glorified by it. So Jesus knows what is going on here. He knows what he intends to do. As I said, perhaps this you know, was one of his final miracles and it was going to be a showstopper, right? This was going to be the ultimate. There would be no doubting that Jesus was different when he raised not just a dead man, but a rotting corpse from the dead. 
And that is precisely why he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He wasn't just going to raise a dead man. He wanted to raise a rotting corpse. We think that verse is funny, but it's just, it's easily explained. He wanted him to rot. It would be more impressive what he did. He lingered so that the miracle would be that much more astonishing, that much more glorifying to the power of the Son of God. And another reason he stayed longer was to teach Mary and Martha to wait on the Lord. Think of that. They had to wait on God. No lesson in that for us, right? Waiting on God. Do you want a spouse? God's going to make you wait, right? Do you want a friendship? God's going to make you wait, right? Do you want peace? God may make you wait. How much trouble we get in when we are unwilling to wait on God, unwilling to, uh, for Him to delay in answering our prayers, right? Uh, don't judge God's love by the condition that you see before your eyes. Don't judge God's love by what you see before your eyes. He has your good in mind, but may wait, Right? Thus far, that's our passage, right? We'll come back to it. There's much more in this passage that we need to allow to work over us.